Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Mark Twain once wrote that if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contribution to the world's lists of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstract learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world in all the ages and has done so with his hands tied behind him. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose filled the planet with sound and splendor and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torches high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains What is the secret of his immortality? Even though Mark Twain was agnostic, didn't know what to believe, and he was a skeptic, he recognized that there was a miraculous nature to the Jewish people, their preservation and their influence in the world, and he didn't understand it, but he did recognize it, and much of the world does recognize it. And uh, as men and women of God's word, we should understand it and why the Jewish people would, would always be in our newspapers, always on our TVs, why there's so much action in Israel and why they've had, you know, they've won so many Nobel Prizes and, and why they have such an influence on the world and why in the world would they be singled out to be exterminated like they were in World War II? Why in the world does that happen? Um, if you've been with us through this study, and this is part seven, uh, if you're just joining us this morning, you're going to feel like you got thrown under a bus, a busload of information. But um, there are all these sermons are online, so uh, this is part seven. Hopefully, next week we'll be done with it. But uh, we should understand by now that God is faithful to His word and to His covenant promises with the Jewish people. So their, their immortality or preservation is what we're going to discuss as we continue working our way chronologically through the history of the Jews as it relates to Scripture. Uh, many people are familiar with the history of the church over the past 2,000 years, but they're not familiar with the history of the Jewish people over the last 2,000 years or the significance of it and how that relates to Scripture And uh, just in an incredibly brief review, let's remind ourselves that God promised the land of Israel to the Jews forever in the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, but disobedience brings scattering or dispersion from the land. The land is theirs, but if they disobey God, 
they get kicked out of the land. Or if they're in the land, they're, they're not ruling over it autonomously and they are uh, going to have insecurity in it. They're not going to have rest in it. So uh, that word scatter or disperse, disperse in relation to Israel is mentioned dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. Just dozens upon dozens of times. Uh, because there's a cause and effect relationship between them and the land and their response to God. So God works in history through the biblical covenants outlined in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, uh, 64 through 65 says, Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, among those nations you will find no rest. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. Leviticus 26 a uh, parallel passage to Deuteronomy says the same thing. He says, I'll make the land desolate so that uh, your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and I will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. So we see the, the same prediction here in Leviticus of, of scattering, and as for the land, it's desolation. So the Jews leave, their land becomes a waste land. And because God kept his word, you know, he's been so faithful to that. On TV, right, the fiddler on the roof said things like, I know we're the chosen people, but once in a while can't you choose someone else? <laughs> scattering and desolation are too familiar to them. But let's remind ourselves that neither Deuteronomy nor Leviticus stop there with scattering and desolation, and neither do the prophets who build on Deuteronomy and Leviticus. When speaking of judgment upon Israel, they're also interjecting hope for Israel at the same time throughout their judgments. For example, Leviticus 26.44 says, In spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I won't reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them. He's not going to make a complete destruction of the Jewish people. He's not, he says, I'm not going to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. And in Jeremiah 30, verse 11, he says, I'm, I'm basically, I'm going to chasten you justly for disobedience, but I will not destroy you completely. So they would not be rejected, they would not be destroyed but they would be preserved and even be restored. And Deuteronomy and Leviticus would become the basis for the seemingly endless prophetic texts about a future restoration of Israel that was not fulfilled in their first return from the exiles to Assyria and Babylon that we have investigated already. But the prophet Jeremiah, he made this point as much as or more than any other prophet I love Jeremiah because even while he's pronouncing judgment upon Israel, he's interjecting hope throughout. Some of the prophets, I think, like Ezekiel, it's like judgment, judgment, judgment. And then at the end, you get the hope. And it's hard to make it through all those judgment passages. But Jeremiah interjects hope throughout his prophecies, and he says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea 
so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, if the foundations of the earth searched out, can be searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So I don't think you can say it more strongly than that. They won't cease from being a nation before him forever. And remember, when Jeremiah wrote this, at this time, this is the time of the first exile. They're getting ready to go into exile. This is in the middle of a judgment passage on Israel. saying, you guys are going to go to be scattered to the nations, but there's the hope that they will not be cast off forever. They're not going to cease to be a nation. Um, Israel at this time should have ceased to be a nation before him, probably, if it wasn't according to his character, because in, this passage, in these passages, it talks about Israel actually being worse than Sodom in their conduct. They were worse than the Canaanites before them, yet God, they made Sodom look righteous, Ezekiel said. Yet, God said that he wouldn't cast them off for all that they've done because he doesn't deal with them, listen to this, according to their evil ways but according to his name, which means he made covenants with Israel and he's not going to have egg on his face. He will and he must, according to his character, keep his covenant promises to them. He won't have egg on his face. He's not going to abandon that covenant relationship uh, because it's ultimately not about them. It's about God and His glory and His covenant-keeping glory, which is going to be on display through His interactions with Israel. And uh, Jeremiah says, hey, if, if you can overturn the fixed order of nature, or you can overturn, you know, the, uh, you can measure the, the heavens or the depths of the earth, which are both impossible, right? Who can measure the heavens? Who can measure the, the depths of the earth? Nobody, Right? But if you could, then you would cease from being, they would cease from being a nation before God. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he's, he's frequently given a lecture on how to destroy the Jewish people. Can you imagine? Here's a lecture on how to destroy the Jewish people. It draws interest, as you can imagine, from neo-Nazis and, and other groups that are anti-Semitic or, you know, Hamas sympathizers. But... Uh, he uses Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37 as his text. And uh, basically the people come to this class on how to destroy the Jewish people and they leave in a tizzy because they realize there's no hope. <laughs> they can't. It's impossible. And uh, there is a preservation of the Jewish people that is unexplainable outside of the Scriptures. You can't explain it if you study their history. There have been intentional, determined repeated efforts to destroy the Jewish people throughout history from Pharaoh to Haman to Hitler to Hussein, and they've all failed. They've all failed miserably because the Jew ends up on top. He actually ends up being blessed through it. The Jews, with every war, they say, end up with another holiday like Purim or Hanukkah. You try to destroy them, they end up with a holiday and celebration. Well, not only that, that's, that, that's just amazing, Right? How the tables turned. Think about World War II, an attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. What do they end up with? 
the nation being reborn, the state of Israel, as a result. I mean, it's, it's God's providence. But what I want to do now is I want to work our way through history from AD 70 to where we left off last time. Um, that's where we left off last time was AD 70. And we're going to work our way to the present day. And we're going to test Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. Let's see if God keeps his word here. So in AD 66 through 73, we see uh, the first Jewish revolt against Rome. Jesus said that a day was coming when, when uh, not a stone was going to be left of the Jewish house, the temple. Not, a, not one stone was going to be left on another, and the Jews were going to be scattered, and, and Jerusalem was going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And uh, that's exactly what happened at AD 70. Jesus' prophecy came true because Titus and the Roman army came in, and they sacked Jerusalem in response to a Jewish revolt. And uh, the Jews had to flee. Many of them were led captive to the nations. And, uh, and we see a second Jewish revolt in A.D. 132 through 135. That's called uh, the Revolt of Bar Kokhba, the son of the star, basically. Bar Kokhba, Simon Bar Kokhba uh, was offered himself as a military messiah. And a lot of Jews uh, followed him in a last-ditch effort to free themselves from Roman oppression. And so through guerrilla warfare... They experienced some initial success. Jerusalem was recaptured, and they even minted coins with the inscription for the freedom of Jerusalem. There was a year one, year two, and year three, but there was no year four because Rome retaliated savagely and absolutely crushed it. And Bar Kokhba was slain. The insurrection was shattered. Anyone attempting to return and rebuild their homes was executed. Rome banished the Jewish people from Jerusalem for the next 200 years, and the land was made desolate. They cut down olive groves, they burned their villages, slave markets were established in Gaza and Hebron, auctioning off Jewish people to foreign slavers who carried them to the far reaches of the world. And this is where the long dispersion really begins. At this time, AD 132 to 135, there was an attempt to erase Jewish remembrance from the land altogether. Her, uh, it was em Emperor Hadrian. He did a number of things, but two important ones was he renamed Jerusalem, Aelia Capitolina. And then he renamed Israel, the land, Syria, Palestina, after the ancient enemies, the Philistines. And uh, so the intention behind the word Palestine was to erase Jewish uh, memory from the land. And through time, it kind of that, that intention was forgotten. And actually, you know, 100 years ago, the, the Jews would say, I'm a, I'm a Palestinian Jew, right? But then again, in 1964, Yasser Arafat took that term Palestine again. He understood the significance of it. And he tried to, he formed a lie around that, saying that there was always a, a Palestinian nation in the land. An Arab Palestinian nation was always in the land, and it wasn't the Jews. And so he formed a big lie around it. That's a lie that's still spreading today. Uh, it's believed on the streets in Israel. Uh, but uh, wherever there was a Jewish or Christian holy site, Hadrian put a pagan temple on top of it. Where Jesus was resurrected, buried, where the temple stood, there was a pagan temple. And he was trying to erase anything that had to do with Jewish Judaism or Christianity. And uh, while most of the Jews did go to the four corners of the globe, 
some, a remnant, did always remain in the land. They're called the Yeshuv. Uh, mostly they, they went up into Galilee. They weren't welcome around Jerusalem. And that's where rabbinic Judaism developed. And Hadrian's aggression pushed the rest of them out. Most of the Jews since then have lived in what we call the diaspora, the dispersion, or the wandering Jews, you might call them. We even have house plants and board games called wandering Jews, right? Um, that describes the sons of Jacob. But they went everywhere. I mean, Europe, Africa, Persia, India, China, you name it. They spent the next 2,000 years running, from free, chasing religious freedom and running from persecution. And they settled all around the world. They would retain their Jewish identity and practices, but they developed unique Jewish cultures. Among them, three of them stand out. The Ashkenazi, the Sephardic, and the Mizrahi Jews. Ashkenazi Jews, uh, they are the ones that we usually think of. They, they settled around the Rhine River in Germany, northern France. They have the, the, they wear the black suits, the black you know, hats. They've got the long hair and, and beards. And, and there's a lot of propaganda out there that claims they're not really Jews. But DNA tests show, trace their heritage back to Judea and the Middle Eastern Jews in the first and second centuries. Uh, Ashkenazi Jews were tormented by economic and religious persecution, they were taxed indiscriminately, prohibited from owning land, and were restricted from certain jobs. They faced expulsion for not converting to Christianity. And because of that, many of them migrated eastward to Poland, Lithuania, and Russia, uh, which comes up later in the narrative. But many Jews died wandering, longing for a country to take them in. Uh, Jews who settled in the Iberian Peninsula, that would be Spain and Portugal, are known as the Sephardic Jews. And for a time, they were free to worship, they were free to engage in commerce, but persecution appeared in the 4th century through the Catholic Church. They were isolated through legislation, you couldn't intermarry with Jews, you couldn't interact with them, you couldn't have lunch with them. And they were so persecuted by Catholicism that they actually, the Jews would end up assisting the liberating Muslims in A.D. 711, because the oppression was so intense, and, and they did well under Muslim rule. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Muslims treated them pretty well, except for the discriminatory tax, right? You're non-Muslim, you have to pay a special tax. But uh, in the 11th century, Catholics began to recapture Spain, and you were forced uh, to convert or die. And in 1492, during the Spanish Inquisition, all practicing Jews were expelled from Spain, and so they migrated into North Africa, Algeria, Libya, Morocco, those sort of places. And then you have the Mizrahi Jews. Mizrahi in Hebrew means Eastern Oriental. These are the Jews who settled Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Egypt, India, China. And uh, they did well for a while too there. Uh, there was some already there from the first exile. But Muslim conquests began in the 7th century. Islam became the dominant religion, and their social status became second class. And uh, heavy taxes were levied upon them as well, despite their, their exile, though, from the land. And they're developing unique cultures among these main three groups of Jews. The, they, none of them ever forgot Jerusalem. And around the world, they would all celebrate Passover. And at the end of Passover, they would say, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem, right? They always wanted to go back. Well, in AD 313 through 636, the Byzantines ruled over Palestine, 
as a continuation of Roman rule. This is the Constantine era type of thing, right? Uh, he legalized Christianity. Many holy sites in the land of Israel were reclaimed. The Hadrian's pagan temples were torn down, and, and different Byzantine churches were built on holy sites. And uh, Jewish persecution uh, kind of, you know, it, it cropped up again. Jews faced discrimination, they faced prohibitions, they couldn't proselytize, you couldn't intermarry with Christians. In 614, the Jews in the land would actually support a Persian invasion. I mean, anything to get out from under Catholicism, basically. They supported a Persian invasion that had maintained control of Jerusalem for three years, but when Jerusalem was recaptured by the Byzantines, they expelled the Jews from the holy city again. And then in 636 to 1099... Uh, you have Arab rule. You have an Islamic conquest of the land. Islam becomes a, a religion and conquers the land, but does not establish an Arab population there. They don't send in Arabs. They just rule over it from Damascus and Baghdad and Egypt. And the people in the land of Israel begin to speak Arabic during this time, but they're not Arabs. It's a linguistic identification. They're Arabs in the fact that they speak Arabic. But uh, for a time, again, they had a measure of protection and freedom if they paid that non-Muslim tax. And in A.D. 685, the Dome of the Rock, that mosque on the Temple Mount with the gold, uh, the gold top on it, the gold dome, uh, that was built during that period. And by the 8th century, the Jews were heavily restricted in their, in their rights. And, and by the 10th century... 300,000 Jews lived in the land, but numbers began to decrease again. Uh, 1099 through 1291, we've got the Crusader period. This is a period that haunts the Jews. Um, it's no surprise Jews don't want anything to do with Jesus because of the atrocities that have been done to them in the name of Christ. As the Crusaders made their way to the Middle East, they massacred, massacred Jewish communities. Crusaders captured the land from the Muslims and massacred many non-Christians in the land. When the Jewish people attempted to defend their homes, they were often burned to death or sold into slavery. Uh, there's stories of Jews being locked in their synagogues, burned alive in them, or slain in the temple area in the name of Christ. As a result of the Crusaders' Jewish population decreases, but in 1187, Muslims recapture it. <laughs> and... Uh, Saladin, a Kurdish officer, called for Jews from all over the world. A Muslim guy calls for people from all over the world, Jews, to come and resettle the land, and he granted them a measure of freedom. So times have changed, right? Uh, 1291 to 1516, that's when the Ma Mamluks rule. Uh, these were an Egyptian and Muslim military class. They ruled from Egypt, and uh, you know they didn't want the Crusaders to come back in, so they destroyed the ports the seaports in Israel, and cut off the trade. And this is when Israel, as the land, became a desolate province. It became desolate. The cities became ruins. Jerusalem was essentially deserted, and a small Jewish community, the Shuv, lived in abject poverty. Horrible conditions, plagues, infestations, malaria, earthquakes, and no one to rebuild. This is the, the, the stage of desolation. And in 1517, about the time of the Reformation, 1517, for the next 400 years, the Ottoman Turks would rule this Turkish empire, 
rose, they attached the land of Israel to the province of Damascus and Syria, and they governed from Istanbul. And they were tolerant towards the Jews and had, and many returned to the land after the expulsion from Spain that we talked about. Right? They're expelled from Spain. Many of them come to Israel. But like the Mamluks, right, the Ottomans would view Israel mainly as a source of revenue, and they imposed oppressive taxes, which made the land languish even further. And this is when many trees were cut down. They had a tree tax. What would happen if we had a tree tax around here? You have a tree on your property, and there's a stout tax on it. What are you going to do? You're going to cut it down. Right? So everybody's cutting down the trees in Israel. Uh, and uh, basically, when the trees were gone, you were left with either a swamp or a desert, depending on the region. And so at this time, only 7,000 Jews were left in the land by the end of the 17th century. And in the 18th century, the land was owned by many absentee landlords. People owned it, but they didn't live there. Nobody wanted to live there. It was a wasteland. But uh, some of those landlords would lease it to tenant farmers, uh, and this is when Mark Twain, in his visit to the Holy Land, describes the condition of the land. He's riding on horseback through the now beautiful Jezreel Valley. And he says this, he says, There's not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction. There are two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride 10 miles hereabouts and not see 10 human beings. I mean, of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. Renowned Jerusalem itself, the stateliest name in history, has lost all its ancient grandeur and has become a pauper village. The riches of Solomon are no longer there. The wonderful temple, which was the pride and glory of Israel, is gone. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Palestine is no more of this workday world. It's sacred to poetry and tradition. It's dreamland. And he says this, can the curse of deity beautify a land? Can the curse of deity beautify a land? And Mark Twain didn't know how prophetic his statement was or how significant it was, but God would start to beautify it in the 19th century. With the Ottoman Empire weakening and they enter into World War I, the British right? Take over the land. Europeans start to become interested in the land. Archaeology started to take off, and so everybody wants to go to Israel and Egypt and dig. Uh, you've got the Suez Canal being built. People start to travel through that area. People want to visit the Holy Land. Jews are interested in the state of the land and the condition of it. Uh, they wanted it to be the land of milk and honey again, and, and the British recognized that the greatest need, this is a quote though, the greatest need is a body of people to take care of the land. There just weren't people in it taking care of it. So who better, they thought, than the Jewish people who had ancient rights to the land and were persecuted throughout the world anyway. Why don't we just give them their home back? And so there's a growing resurgence of uh, you know Jews wanting to come to the land and then a resurgence of historical grammatical interpretation of the scriptures as well. People interpreting prophecy plainly, reading their Bibles plainly, seeing God's not done with Israel. So that started to have a large resurgence at the time. And uh, by 1856, there's 17,000 Jews, 10,000 more. By 1880, 25,000. And mo most of these were agrarians. They moved back to the land. They bought the land at exorbitant prices. 
legally, and they started to make the land flourish. They drained the swamps, they irrigated the deserts, they planted trees, they started building cities and villages known as kibbutzim, like you heard were attacked recently, right? The kibbutzim. Um, the city of Jerusalem actually at this time had a Jewish majority once again. And then in 1881 to 1921, pogroms in Russia motivated more Jews to return. These are state-sponsored attacks on the Jewish people. Governments went home to home, door to door, looting, raping, and murdering Jews. Hundreds of thousands of Jews just because they're Jewish. And the Bible talks about them being regathered through persecution. 1882, 1903, the persecution, right, causes the first aliyah, is what we call it. Aliyah means ascent in Hebrew. You're going up to Jerusalem. It's an ascent. That's where that comes from. But uh, these are immigration waves, and aliyah is an immigration wave, and there were several of them. There was 25,000 Jews that settled in Israel during this period around 1900. And this is where you start to see the resurgence of the Hebrew language. Uh, also during this period, Jewish, Israel became an ethnic melting pot. Among those who were being counted as Palestinian Arabs, get this, here's the, here's the identification of Palestinian Arabs about you know, 120 years ago. You've got Balkans, Greeks, Syrians, Latins, Egyptians, Turks, Armenians, Italians, Kurds, Germans, Afghans, uh, Circassians, Bosnians, Sudanese, Samaritans, Algerians, Madawala, Tartars. Those are your Palestinians. So they're not just an ethnic Arab people. They're people from all over the world who saw Israel flourishing again through the Jews who had migrated back, and now they want to join, right? They want to go there for a better lifestyle. And uh, 1894 to 1895... Anti-Semitism erupted in France now. Uh, and this led a key figure, Theodore Herzl. He's the George Washington of Israel. Uh, if you go to Israel today, you're going to see Herzl everywhere. His picture's hanging above where they read the Declaration of Independence from. Uh, you have Herzl Street, you know, everywhere you look. But uh, he wrote a, a, a book called The Jewish State in 1896, and he puts Zionism, the idea of supporting the restoration of the Jews to the land, on the map. He puts Zionism on the map. 1897, you see the first Congress of, of Zionism in Switzerland. 1904 to 14, you got a second aliyah with 40,000 Jews coming from the pogroms in Russia. Uh, 80, 1917, though, here's the big one. Here's the modern Cyrus decree, basically. The British take control of the land during World War I and they issue what is called the Balfour Declaration that, that favors the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. It reads, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in another country. And so what this meant was that for the first time in 2,000 years, the Jewish people could determine their own destiny and not have to be dependent on other host countries 
And many of these British leaders uh, had faith in the scriptures. They had a desire to alleviate the suffering of the Jewish people. And the way I see it, this Balfour Declaration is not much different than when King Cyrus took over Babylon, 539 B.C., Persians take over Babylon and issue a decree, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that says, okay, you guys can go home now. The Gentiles have the say. I mean, this is, this is God's providence in the times. The Gentiles, and the Gentiles say, okay, you can go home now. And... Uh, in 1919 through 23, you have the third elite. You've got 40,000 more Jews arrived from Russia, provoked by communism. Uh, nobody wants to be under communism, right? <laughs> so they move back. These Jews move mostly to uh, the cities, though, instead of agricultural sediments and settlements. And the Arabs begin to strongly oppose Jewish settlement now, proposing immigration restrictions and inciting violence. And this actually moved Winston Churchill to issue the White Paper of 1922, which is just a, a legislative form, right? But uh, he recognized in this White Paper the right of the Jews to the land, but at the same time he limited, put a limit, slowed down immigration traffic of Jews back to the land. And this couldn't have come at a worse time because look at the year, right? 1922, World War II is just around the corner. Whoever can't go back to Israel, stuck in Europe, is going to face the Holocaust. Uh, in 1921, Haj Amin al-Husseini was appointed the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. So uh, the kind of your main Palestinian leader guy, and he's the uncle of none other than Yasser Arafat, uh, who was just on their TV screen and then, you know, just about every day in the 90s. And there's peace agreements going on between him and our presidents, but... Uh, Yasser, he, this Husseini guy would eventually collaborate and become friends with Hitler during the 30s and the 40s. And Husseini is the primary source and instigator of so many problems that we see today. We don't realize how great of an effect this guy had on, on our world and on Nazi Germany. He's, he encouraged and advised Hitler on killing the Jews. And he, he recruited 100,000 European Muslims to fight for Nazi Germany. In 1922, the League of Nations accepted the Balfour Declaration. They ratified it. In 1924 through 32, you have the Fourth Aliyah. You have Jews arriving mainly from Poland. And these are mostly artisans and shopkeepers now. So, uh, you've got the Jewish national home taking shape. The Hebrew of universe. Hebrew University became a world-class academic institution. They started to develop a self-governing national council, a self-defense organization that would later become known as the IDF, uh, formed in response to Arab attacks on Jewish communities. And Rydelnik, Michael Rydelnik notes this. He says, between the two world wars here, the Jewish population of Palestine increased by 375,000, but the Arab population increased by 380,000. There were restrictions on the Jewish immigration, but unlimited immigration for Arabs from neighboring states. And a lot of Arabs were moving there during this time to benefit from the Jewish restoration of the land. They had a better life there. They were freer. You know, they lived longer. Less infant mortality rates. They went there for a better life. Um, in 1933, you have the, the fifth aliyah. 
250,000 Jews, mainly from Germany, industrialists and professionals, flee Hitler's torrent of anti-Semitic legislation. Christian, or sorry, Jews were, were being targeted in Germany. And uh, basically, again, that white paper condemned the Jews. Uh, there was a white paper in 1939 with war right around the corner, same year, right? A white paper of 1939 repudiated the Balfour Declaration because the British were seeking Arab allies. And they repudiated that, and they started to limit Jewish immigration, and it couldn't have come at a worse time. In 1939 through 45, right, this is where we have World War II and the Holocaust, six million Jews die. I couldn't tell you, man, I, this stuff ain't fun to study. This was miserable studying Jewish history. It was a dark couple of weeks for me preparing for this. I had tears in my eyes more than once because what has been done to the Jews throughout history is unbelievable. It's unspeakable. Six million Jews. You just target a people group and say wipe them out. How do you do that? How does man do that? I mean, I don't know what's more appalling, the numbers or the fact that man could actually do it. It's unreal. That's what man is capable of. That's how far gone we are as sinners. It's dark. Adolf's final solution to the Jewish problem is just exterminate them completely. Informed by Hajjimin al-Husseini, Palestinian leader. Economic, political, social problems. Who do we blame them on? The Jews. Same thing today. People blame things on the Jews today. Uh, there's even a conservative right-wing movement blaming the Jews for a lot of stuff today economically. I don't want you to believe a word of it, but they were killed in shooting operations and gas chambers. They were worked and starved to death. The word genocide was invented because of this moment in history. They'd never seen anything like it, and they're like, we need to, we need to invent a new word just to describe what happened here so that people don't forget it. It's a very dark moment in history, one worth inventing a word over. And I believe that through Hitler, just like Pharaoh, just like other events in history, right? Satan tried to end the Jewish story during this time period because God still has plans for them. But it's interesting, right? You see the tables turn. And out of the ashes of the Holocaust, Israel's reborn as a nation. In 1947, the United Nations was established to prevent, I don't know if you know this, but they were, they were established to prevent something like this from ever happening again. Uh, when the British were at a loss as to how to govern Palestine, it was just, you know, there's civil war there, but uh, they submitted the question to the UN, and the UN partitioned uh, Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. And the Jews would get the coastal plain and eastern Galilee and the Negev, and the Arabs would get western Galilee, the central part of the country, and the Gaza Strip. So they, they had a pretty clear outline there, a Jewish state and an Arab state. Jerusalem was going to be an international city. This was the proposal. And the Jews, like, they heard this and they rejoiced all around the world, right? Let's go home. We don't care if we don't get it all. We just want some land. We want to go home. We're tired of being persecuted. You're coming out of the Holocaust. 
But, but the Palestinians rejected it. They said, no way, we're not going to coexist with these people. And we want all the land, and they began to wage even more terrorism. In 1948, the British said, okay, we're done. Okay, the UN made their proposal, we're done. We don't even want anything to do with this anymore. And uh, the Jewish people, because of that, and with the, the affirmation from the United Nations, declared independence or statehood on May 15, 1948. And uh, it reads this way, it says, It's the natural right of the Jewish people, like any other people, to control their own destiny in their sovereign state. Accordingly, we, the members of the People's Council of the Jewish people of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, and of the Zionist movement, are here assembled on the day of the termination of the British mandate over Eretz Israel, and by virtue of our natural and historic right, in the United Nations, we hereby declare the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel to be known as the State of Israel. The State of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and the ingathering of the exiles. It will foster the development of, a, of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants, not just the Jews, but everybody. It will be based on the principles of freedom, justice, and peace as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. Placing our trust in the Almighty, we affix our signatures to this proclamation. And May 14, 1948, with those words, the state of Israel was reborn for the first time in 2,000 years. Isn't that crazy? On that very day, though, as encouraging as it was, that's when the War of Independence began. Uh, the surrounding six Arab nations, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, all attack Israel with the intentions of wiping them off the map again. And so the Jews come out of the Holocaust saying, never again, and what do you have? Another attempted Holocaust. They're fighting for their existence, outmanned and outgunned. They win this war, even though they're, that's coming at them from all sides, and they basically have no military, hardly at all. They have only 19,000 men fully armed, prepared for war. There's 80,000 Arabs coming from all sides who, who controlled the skies. But what they won as if, you know, there was a higher hand involved. Uh, Israel won. They expected to sign a peace agreement, but it never came. And during this time, 650,000 Arabs fled from Israel. And their, the Arab nation said, once we exterminate these Jews, you'll move back in. Well, they lost. And they didn't move back. However, Jews, 820,000 Jews, were kicked out of those nations where they'd been. They couldn't live there anymore, even though they'd been there for 2,000 years, some of them. They got kicked out, and they came back to the land. They had to give up all their assets and, assets and citizenship to leave. So, uh, in 1964 through 65, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, was established, also known as the Palestinian Authority now, as established in Cairo, uniting various Arab groups under one umbrella with the purpose of destroying Israel. And uh, they voted to drive the Jews into the sea. 1967, there's constant bombardment from Syria into Galilee, which provoked another war known as the Six-Day War. And despite being outgunned and outmanned, again, Israel defeated Egypt, uh, Assyria, Jordan. They acquired, look at, listen, listen to this. This is what they had before, the map on the left. And what they had after that war, six days, is what they had on the right. 
They gained Jerusalem. They, they gained Judea and Samaria there, the West Bank, the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights. I mean, they drove back all those Arab nations, and it's, it's just the stories that come out of this war are just so miraculous and providential. Like, how did this happen? Nobody expected it, but it happened. And uh, again, Israel thought, ah, they're going to offer us a peace treaty now. Well, no, actually, they got together, the Arab leaders in Khartoum, uh, Sudan, and they resolved that they will have three significant no's. They will live by these principles. No peace, no negotiations, no recognition of Israel, ever. No peace, no negotiations, and no recognition. In 1973, you have the Yom Kippur War, October 6th, 1973. Egypt and Assyria launched a surprise attack. Many Jews lost their lives. There wasn't a home untouched by that attack. And uh, they won that as well. But uh, throughout the rest of the history there, 1975 to 2000, uh, you just have constant propaganda wars, shootings, bombings from terrorists, This is when Israel starts to build walls and fences and checkpoints, right? Just trying to protect themselves from from the onslaught and always acting in defense. Uh, There was a bunch of peace agreements, as you you can imagine, but uh, our our president's trying to bring peace to the Middle East. But that was in the days of the, you know, the 90s back when the Huskers were in glory. Remember that? Yeah, Huskers were... We're in their glory years, but uh, so was Yasser Arafat, and he was face was on TV all the time. I can picture it now with that red scarf, right, red and white scarf. But uh, in 2005, Israel had already given much of land back, trying to get some peace treaties. And um, 2005, that's when they disengaged from the Gaza Strip altogether. And anyone who was, an, who was an Israeli that was there, they were forced to leave. They left everything behind. I mean, here's your Palestinian state. Take over Gaza. Do what you want with it. And what, it, what happened was it became a, a nest of terrorism. And we're dealing with it today. In 2006, Hamas uh, actually won uh, the elections there. And since then, I mean, they've just continued to dig tunnels and pester Israel and fire rockets just nonstop since 2005, 2006. And uh, that's why we're at where we're at today. And, and it's amazing that uh, anti-Semitism is on the rise again. But that's where we're going to end it, the history. Um, what do we take from this? Number one, that it's a myth to say there was always a Palestinian or Muslim nation in the land of Israel. It just, it's just not a thing. It's a lie. It's propaganda. And secondly, we can conclude that God isn't done with the Jewish people. I mean, you see him preserve them throughout history, and things are taking place that are unexplainable. You know, Martin Luther said, if the Jews are Abraham's descendants, then we would expect them to be back in their own land. We would expect them to have a state of their own. But what do we see? We see them living among us, scattered and despised. Well, that was 500 years ago when Luther said that. And uh, I just wonder where he would be at today if he saw the state of Israel today. To him, the idea that God would literally fulfill his promises to Israel, according to a plain interpretation of Scripture, was unthinkable. And uh, yet here they are. And historians and anthropologists have long bent their minds trying to explain it. Mark Twain's said, how do you, you know, he, he, they, they couldn't explain it like Mark Twain. He just, he, 
He didn't know why. Why, was, why is there so much significance around them, and why is this happening to them? Uh, how do you explain a, a people that has survived systemic vilification, persecution, and genocide while scattered around the world? And the only answer is, I think, Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. God keeps his word. He's faithful to his covenant with them. And that's the secret of Jewish immortality. Charles Feinberg said, The survival of Israel through the centuries can be explained only on supernatural grounds. The big principle that I'd like us to take home from this is that the existence of the Jewish people and the reestablishment of Israel as a national state proves, number one, the veracity of the Scriptures, and the, number two, the existence of God. Because, like Satan wants, I mean, you can wipe these people off the map, then you can disprove the existence of God. You can hinder his plans. But we can trust God's word, right? Frederick the Great said, <laughs> he asked one of his chaplains for one clear and compelling reason for, the exist- for him to believe in the existence of God. Give me one piece of evidence to prove that God exists. And the chaplain was said to have replied, The amazing Jew, your majesty, the Jew. And after reading uh, these scriptures here this morning, and just talking about these things to you, my challenge to you uh, is that you would take some time this week and maybe read or reread Ezekiel 36 through 39. That's just where I happen to be in my devotional time personally. And I read it this week. And, uh, but these things fresh in your mind. Go back and reread those. It's amazing. Ezekiel talks about the house of Israel regathered in stages and regathered in unbelief in preparation for end times events, including a spiritual regeneration. So, uh, let's just let's pray. Maybe we'll talk more about that next week, huh? Lord, we thank you so much. Uh, just I thank you for the patience of these people here this morning, being willing to, to sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and in worship and, and to uh, sit through this long history of the Jewish people. Lord, um, your Word is, is such a, a precious gift to us. It's, it's, it's revelation from you to us that without which we could not understand our world, we could not even understand how to operate in it properly in a way that glorifies you. I mean, your word explains national Israel. It even explains the hatred of Jewish people at national Israel. Not even the hatred makes sense unless we understand uh, what your word says about the curses and uh, the supernatural elements involved. But Lord, what a God you are that you would continue to act providentially even after all these years. And I pray that we would act, too, in support of the Jewish people. Uh, we would align our hearts with your word and with the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11, who loved his Jewish brethren so much, and it just grieved him to see them um, not coming to Christ. And um, it, it should grieve us to see how much damage has been done to them in the name of Christ. So, Lord, help us to stand out, to be different, and to... Uh, glorify you. Now we pray that you might use us, you might even use this sermon series to reach Jewish people for Jesus, uh, that, that they would understand Jesus really is their prophetic Messiah that they need, and he's the one who's coming again, and that if they trust in him as, 
as, as with all of us, right, they can experience that amazing salvation and forgiveness from sins and spend eternity with you. That, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.